everyone. Welcome to the third season of the Abnormal Psychologist podcast. Um, I'm super excited to be back with you for another round of psychology-related episodes. If this is your first episode to listen to, uh, my name is Dr. Colby Taylor, and I am a licensed psychologist in the state of Tennessee and also an assistant professor of behavioral sciences at Christian Brothers University, which is in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, I also wanted to give a shout out to Joseph Jameson, who created the intro music for this podcast. And I used a little different intro music uh, this episode since we're starting a new season. Uh, so thanks, uh, JJ or Joseph, for composing that for us. Um, so it seems like forever since I've recorded an episode. Um, it was before the holidays, for sure. Uh, so on my end, the holidays went pretty well. Um, there was nothing super eventful, which is, which is great. Uh, you might remember that I have two really young children. I have Emerson, who's two years old, and I have Rowan, who's soon to be nine months old. Um, Emerson really liked Christmas. She's at that super fun age. Uh, she was really sad when we finally put Christmas decorations away, which admittedly was only like a couple of weeks ago. And uh, the weather here in Memphis has been sort of Christmas-y lately. I don't know if Christmas-y is like an adjective. Uh, but anyways, we had this massive ice storm two weeks ago, and uh, a lot of the city was without power. Um, we lost power at the Taylor Homestead for like 36 hours. Um, so I lost the fish in my aquarium. We had to clean out the refrigerator. It was just a giant mess. Um, and it's no fun having two little kids without electricity. And I was actually planning on recording this episode when I heard like these three really loud pops um, from the transformer across the street. And then everything went dark for the next 36 hours. So it was a no-go on the episode. Uh, but as of yesterday, everybody in Memphis has their power restored. So thank goodness. Um, and we returned to Christian Brothers University um, uh, for our spring semester. We're in person. All is good. Uh, anyways, uh, let's get to let's get to the season. Let's get to the meat of this episode. So, in one of my mailbag requests last season, I had a request to do more psychological assessment episodes. So, I thought I would kick this episode off with a super common, super old assessment, which is the mental status examination. And mental status exams, we don't usually call them mental status examinations, that sounds so formal, um, are sort of the bread and butter of assessments for mental health care practitioners. Uh, they're usually performed very early in a therapeutic relationship, so I thought it was fitting to do this as an early episode for the season. And I might have mentioned this in one of the last episodes of season two, but I recently taught a course in behavioral health to physician assistants um, that are in training. We have a physician assistance program that's awesome at Christian Brothers University. Good plug for that. Um, and that course really emphasized the mental status exam. So it's something that's fresh on my mind. I mean, it's also fresh on my mind since I'm going to get back into clinical work this spring. And a lot of my clinical duties will involve administering mental status exams. Um, as I mentioned, the mental status exam is really old. It's been around for a long time, for at least 120 years. 120 years ago, it was brought into American psychiatry by Adolf Meyer, M-E-Y-E-R, in 1902. And I just said psychiatry. Um, it's interesting, the mental status exam has been traditionally something more in the realm of psychiatry or in medicine, like why I taught the physician assistants um, about the mental status exam, than in the realm of psychology. A lot of psychologists have never performed an MSE before. Uh, psychologists usually give more tailored, more specific assessments than a mental status exam. Uh, we'll talk about appearance in a little bit, 
But psychologists just tend to write this under the heading of behavioral observations in their assessment reports. Um, and all of my reports, I have a section um, with the header of behavioral observations. It's usually the first thing that you'll come across. One of the first things you'll come across in one of my psychological reports. The reason this is more in the realm of medicine than in psychology is that oftentimes medical practitioners, they don't have the time, especially if you're in an emergency setting, uh, to conduct like comprehensive psychological tests or assessment. Um, I also don't want you to think of the mental status exam, which you'll see abbreviated as MSE in mental health literature, um, as like standardized tests. Uh, many clinical settings will have their own sort of idiosyncrasies about the mental status exam. So like when I did MSEs in Hawaii, they looked a little bit different than when I did uh, or when I do MSEs in Memphis. And I mean, there are a lot of different mental, mental status exams that are out there. Uh, there's the North Carolina mental status examination. There's the Missouri automated mental status examination checklist. Um, probably the most famous is the mini mental status examination, the MMSE which has become really popular and is more standardized than some of the others. So there's a lot of them that are out there. While acknowledging that there are a lot of different versions of the MSE, they do tend to follow a pattern. Most MSEs will note appearance of clients first. And for appearance, you might look to see if your client is appropriately dressed. Do their clothes match the season or the weather? Is your client well-groomed? Or do they appear disheveled? Um, I oftentimes appear disheveled. Uh, so I'd be sort of dreading what somebody would put for appearance under my mental status exam. Um, do they have a certain odor? And, you know, some of this stuff is really difficult to get through telehealth. Um, telehealth has certain observational strengths, for sure. Like, you can possibly see the living quarters of your client, um, which you would not be able to do if your client was coming into the office, right, in a traditional sort of face-to-face -face visit. Um, your client probably isn't wearing a mask at home, so through telehealth you might be able to see something like enamel decay associated with an eating disorder. You might not be able to see if they're masked up in the clinic. Uh, but telehealth also has its drawbacks. Um, you can't smell the person for one, uh, which I don't know if that for sure is a drawback. It might be a plus for a lot of people. Um, it's hard to pick up on gait, so how your client walks, which is another aspect of appearance in the mental status exam. Um, and I guess you could sort of awkwardly ask your client to get up and walk around the room on camera through telehealth. Um, but again, that would be pretty awkward. Uh, with appearance, you can also look at your client's posture. Um, you can look at their motor activity. You can see whether they're hyperactive or whether they have, they have like nervous behavioral tendencies. Or they have certain tics. Whether they, you know, tap their feet, move their legs, play with their hair, that sort of thing. Maybe excoriation with skin picking or trichotillomania with hair pulling. A lot of stuff you can get from behavioral observation. Um, you can also see how they make eye contact. So there's so much stuff you can garner under the appearance heading. This can also be sort of dangerous for clinicians. Uh, now we have open notes laws that apply to some clinical settings. And if a client gets access to the mental status exam and the clinician said they were disheveled and had an unpleasant odor, you know, that could lead to some friction between the clinician and the client. So moving on from appearance, we have another A heading, uh, attitude. And with attitude, sometimes it's called relatedness, sometimes it's called cooperativeness. Um, but with this, we're looking whether your client is cooperative, friendly, open, um, or whether they're hostile, secretive, guarded, evasive, suspicious, apathetic, distracted, uh, maybe even seductive. 
Um, and so with all of the mental status exam, a lot of times it can just be sort of like a checklist with these adjectives that are already sort of pre-written out um, into a checklist that you can photocopy or you can even have on your computer. And you can just sort of check the adjective cooperative or hostile. And so it's super quick uh, to be able to perform one of these mental status exams. If you're not using sort of the checklist, usually something like attitude, you'd put in one or two adjectives. So it's only like a two word long setting. You might put cooperative or friendly, at least if it's within normal limits. Um, now, if you're having somebody that presents with sort of an atypical um, attitude, you might get into a little bit more detail. So if they're suspicious, you might not just put the attitude suspicious. You might add some behavioral observations to back up why you think your client is acting suspicious. You know, what are they doing? Are they, um, are they not looking you in the eye? Are they sort of being very um, terse or short with um, uh, answers to questions that you're asking, that sort of thing. So if it's within normal limits, these tend to be really, really short and quick. And when we have uh, mental status exams that are a little bit outside of the norm, that's when we tend to get into a little bit more richness with description. So we can describe exactly how this is abnormal. This is an abnormal presentation. So we have appearance, we have attitude. Let's keep on with the A-train and talk about alertness, which also might be called levels of consciousness. So you might see some funny notations if you're looking through a mental status exam. You might see the letters A-A-O, then the letter X for times, and then you might see a number next to it. So the A-A-O stands for alert, awake, and oriented. Oriented to what, you might ask? And then you have the, the, the X and then the number it's usually three if you're fully oriented. Um, and the three would be that you're oriented to person, which would be number one. So you know who you are. Place, so you know where you are. And time, so you know uh, you know what year it is, uh, what week it is, maybe what day of the week it is. Um, so person, place, and time. And again, we can uh, judge this through asking some very simple questions. You know, what's your name? Who are you? Do you know where you are? Do you know how you got here? Uh, do you know who the president is, which I think is a stereotypical question that's sort of asked in movies and pop culture references, that sort of thing. Um, so AAO times three would be fully oriented. Occasionally, you'll see AAO times four, which is a little bit less common. And that means you're also oriented to the why. So why are you here? Um, so you might have some level of insight as to why you're seeing a psychologist or a, a physician or a mental health care practitioner. Um, uh, one caveat for me, if somebody's not fully oriented, um, and so they put AAO times two, I'm guessing it's probably person and place and they're not oriented to time. Uh, but, but again, since this is outside of normal limits, um, write out the thing that they're not oriented to. So I'm just not like, or another practitioner is not looking at this and saying AAO times two, you know, I'm assuming it's person in place, but maybe it's, you know, maybe it's not. Uh, write out what they're not oriented to as well, if it's not that neat and clean AAO times three. For alertness, you might also write something like vigilant, so you can use adjectives here, and whether, you know, they're alert or whether they're lethargic. They might be sort of drowsy. They might be sleepy. They might even be comatose. They might be confused. Uh, so again, we can add some adjectives in here for a little bit more of a rich description of what your client's presenting as. The mental status exam also tends to code affect and mood. And affect, I guess, again, begins with an A, so I'm seeing a theme here. Um, affect is the outward projection of an emotion, 
whereas mood is the dominant emotion present during the interview. So affect would be sort of the behavioral cues to how a person's feeling. Um, affect, uh, if it's normal, we usually put have a good range of emotion, expressive emotion, um, emotion you know within normal limits or emotion uh, congruent with mood might be some things that you note. If affect is outside of normal limits, we might code whether it's flat affect, which you might see with something like schizophrenia, where you have a very limited expression of emotions, almost like a mask-like um, face, um, whether you have constricted emotions, whether you're angry, anxious, sad, labile mood, which means your moods are, are fluctuating, um, or whether your affect is inappropriate to the situation. Uh, maybe you're presenting as uh, very happy um, and expressive and, you know, there's a lot of really heavy stuff that's going on with you. And, you know, that we wouldn't really expect that from uh, somebody in certain situations, right? Uh, mood uh, tends to be, again, uh, the dominant emotion that's present during the interview. Um, and normal mood is usually described using the adjective euthymic. Um, that's sort of like a normal good mood. Um Outside of normal limits, we usually use adjectives like uh, depressed mood or maybe a manic, um, uh, abnormally elevated mood would be something that's coded. Angry could be another sort of mood that's coded. Affect and mood, again, are usually within the same section, um, but there is a difference between affect and mood with mood being, again, the dominant emotion present during the interview and affect being the outward projection of that emotion. And normally we would expect those to be congruent with one another, meaning that they're lining up pretty well. You're expressing what we think that you're feeling. Um, and so you might see the term mood congruent there. Or if they're not lining up, if your affect is not lining up with your mood, you might see the term mood incongruent being used. Okay, so we're finally gonna get off of this A theme with the mental status exam. So another section that's commonly covered in an MSE is speech and language. Uh, so with speech and language, you might see it divided into receptive language, so how well the person understands what you're saying, and expressive language. So how well are they communicating to you both verbally and non-verbally? Um, with expressive language, a lot of times we look at quantity, um, so how talkative are people, um, or how not talkative are people. Is there a poverty of language that's present? Um, so we look at quantity, we look at rate, are people talking super fast or super slow, um, or is it a normal rate? Um, volume, uh, are people talking abnormally loud uh, or abnormally soft? Um, uh, and fluency and rhythm or prosody we also look at um, with, with fluency. Um, is there slurred speech, uh, which might indicate you know, some sort of neurological condition or some sort of substance use? Um, is speech clear? Are there certain uh, difficulties with articulation? Uh, do we have sort of mechanical prosody, sort of the robotic voice that we might have with something like autism spectrum disorder? Um, so there's a lot that we can get from speech and language with the acknowledgement that most people that are performing mental status exams are not licensed SLPs. Occasionally in this section, if you really want to probe deeper, you might give some sort of vocabulary test or you might give some sort of like receptive language test where you give verbal instructions to somebody, sort of like Simon says, or follow the leader or something like that. Um, with all of this, you want to acknowledge uh, the person's native language. Um, you wouldn't want to code something as abnormal 
um, if their primary or first language uh, is not the language that you're giving these sort of receptive language exercises in. Moving along, so we're sort of getting to what I consider the meat of the mental status exam. We're getting to sort of the GC, more psychologically relevant stuff. Um, and that's dealing with thought. And we usually have two sections dealing with thought. We have thought process and we have thought content. Thought process, we can usually tie back into speech and language. So this is sort of describing how a person is thinking. And with a normal, within normal limits, thought process, we would expect people to be goal-directed, uh, for thought to be logical or linear. So, you know, if A, then B. Um, it's pretty pretty easy for the, uh, the practitioner or the clinician to follow. There might be some level of abstract reasoning that's there. Um, it, you know, thinking is not just concrete. Um, that, you know, there's metaphors and similes and that sort of thing. Having sort of this richness of expression. Uh, with abnormal thought, um, sometimes people go off on tangents, which we call tangential thought. And this can be really hard for a clinician to follow. We might start seeing this with something like bipolar one disorder. Uh, people might be circumstantial in their thought. There might be magical thinking uh, that's present, which again might be indicative of a psychotic disorder. Uh, I believe when we talked about bipolar disorder and also maybe schizophrenia, we talked about flight of ideas. Um, where you have this really nonlinear flight uh, thought pattern. Your, your ideas are flying all over the place. Um, and this, this can be extremely hard for a clinician to follow. Um, uh, there could be incoherence here. So you might see the adjective incoherent used. Um, so there's a lot that we can get from thought process. Thought process is also probably where you're going to start to look at um, whether hallucinations or delusions are present. Uh, whether there might be any sort of suicidal risk. So you might do a quick and easy suicide risk assessment or assessment of homicidality. Um, and thought process sort of ties into thought content at this point. And th thought content is what you're thinking about. So again, you might screen for hallucinations, for delusions, for illusions, uh, for depressive ideation, suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation, um, whether somebody's aggressive whether there's symbolism or recurring thought patterns, you might start getting into obsessions here. From thought process and thought content, clinicians are usually able to fill out the next sections, which deal with insight and then dealing with judgment and planning. Uh, so with insight, um, again, based on your conversations that you had with your client so far and sort of the how you're um, reading their thoughts, but not necessarily reading your thoughts in a delusional sort of way, of how you're interpreting their thoughts, uh, you might um, be able to draw on insight. So sort of what is the insight into the client's condition? And this could be the medical condition they're presenting with or the psychological or psychiatric condition that they're dealing with. With judgment and planning, you might get into sort of um, thoughts about the future. Um, so, you know, what is sort of the plan of this client once they're discharged? Um, is there impulsive thinking that's present? Um, if, you know, your client is talking about something that's completely unrealistic, um, you might code as poor judgment. Um, or if they're struggling with sort of impulse control, you know, what comes to mind here is somebody that's sort of in the throes of a manic episode with bipolar one. Uh, judgment um, might not be the best. Um, and so, uh, judgment and planning is usually a, a really short section, 
uh, impulse control um, is usually coded here too. And speaking of impulse control, you can also code for attention and concentration. Um, so sometimes you'll see a subsection for attention and concentration um, on the mental status exam. And you might be able to code how impulsive you think that your client is, how distracted they appear during the course of the mental status exam, uh, that sort of thing under attention and concentration. Did they seem frustrated that they might not be able to focus fully on the question that you're asking? Uh, if there were extraneous noises or people popping into the room, uh, did that really throw off their attention and concentration, that sort of thing? Or did they seem hyper-attentive or hyper-concentrated? Maybe there was a fire alarm going off and something that, you know, should have distracted most people and somehow they were blocking that out and really thinking about the question that uh, you had just asked them. So attention and concentration is often a subsection of the mental status exam. Some mental status exams get into intelligence and ideally, you know, a comprehensive standardized test of intelligence will have been given and you might have standard scores or IQs that you could put in for intelligence and, you know, not necessarily try to cover this in a quick and dirty way um, that you would normally do with a mid, you know, a mental status exam. This is normally a bedside assessment or an assessment, again, that's occurring within 15 minutes um, in, a, in a clinical relationship. And obviously that's way too quick to, to get an IQ from somebody. Uh, with intelligence, if based on, you know, thought process, thought content, and language, you don't really have any concerns about their intelligence. You might put um, average or above average intelligence or no concerns about intelligent, intelligence, not clinically significant intelligence concerns or something like that. Again, ideally, there's been a comprehensive and formal assessment of intelligence uh, that you're able to plug in scores from here uh, because we don't want to be doing this sort of on an impressionistic 15-minute, um, very subjective uh, assessment like the mental status exam, trying to figure out what level of intelligence you are. Um, that is definitely not ideal or accurate. Moving along from intelligence, we can get into memory. In memory, we usually divide into short-term and long-term. Uh, and so with some mental status exams, um, you might ask somebody to remember uh, a list of objects maybe three to five objects at the beginning of the mental status exam. And then towards the end of the mental status exam, you revisit that list of objects and see if they can recall the list of objects, which would be getting at long-term memory. With long-term memory too, you can also ask about uh, biographical information. Um, if you have access to that through their charts, um, you can ask about historical information. So, a short-term memory, you can test bedside with something like um, a digit span. Uh, and so with digit span, you give a string of numbers, usually one second apart, um, and you ask the client to recall that string of numbers when you're done. So you might say something like four, seven, nine, three, eight. And then your client would repeat back four, seven, nine, three, eight, ideally. And that shows um, some level of short-term memory. Uh, most people with uh, sort of digit span are functioning seven plus or minus two. Um, so sort of average mem uh, memory for digits is between five and nine digits, which most phone numbers in the United States are seven digits long, fits right into that. Um, and so uh, we can assess memory there. And uh, with memory, um, you might see adjectives like intact memory for short-term and long-term which indicates there's no memory concern or impaired memory. And then with impaired memory, again, we'd add more 
richness of description as to how that memory is impaired and whether it applies to short-term, long-term, or both. Towards the beginning of this podcast, I mentioned the mini mental status exam, the MMSE, which is one of the more standardized applications of the mental status exam. Uh, the mini mental status exam is a 30 question long um, standardized questionnaire. It's commonly used in medicine. Uh, you'll see it abbreviated MMSE instead of just MSE for mental status exam, MMSE, mini mental status exam. Um, so in this, you ask the questions. There's very um, detailed questions that you would ask in order. So you're not just sort of bouncing around like you might do with a mental status exam where you can bounce from orientation to thought content to thought process to language. Um, here it's more directed. Um, uh, the memory tasks are more directed. Uh, they, so you're not having to come up with memory exercises on your own. Um, uh, there, there's numbers that uh, you, people are asked to, to memorize or list of words or that sort of thing. Um, which sort of helps um, the scriptedness, makes it a little bit easier on the clinician, I think. Um, there's a copying of a picture um, uh, exercise, which is interesting. We don't have that with most mental status exams. Um, so the mini mental status exam, um, I believe you can access free and open source online if you've searched mini mental status exam. But that's one of the more standardized measures of mental status. When it originally came out in the 1970s, it was only like 11 items long, and now it's 30 items long. Um, but because it's a little bit more standardized, we have some better um, technical adequacy statistics on it um, than we do for, you know, just sort of your run-of-the-mill mental status exam. So with technical adequacy, I'm talking about uh, reliability and validity. Um, and one of the problems with sort of unstandardized mental status exams is Clinicians might look at the same client, two different clinicians, three different clinicians, and use different adjectives to describe that client or develop different clinical or diagnostic impressions. Um, because again, it's sort of a loose sort of assessment. So we sort of worry about um, inter-rater reliability, uh, clinicians lining up with one another. And the mini mental status exam has pretty good inter-rater reliability. It's usually, most research studies have found it to be above 0.80 which is pretty good. Um, we also worry sometimes about test retest reliability. So if you were to give a mental status exam, you know, five minutes after the fact, 10 minutes after the fact, or a day after the fact, um, you know, how well are those uh, diagnostic or clinical impressions going to align with one another? The mini mental status exam has pretty good test retest reliability. Um, so again, because it's a little bit more standardized, um, we can get better statistics as to how valid and reliable uh, the mini mental status exam is. So I'm at 27 minutes. So I was just looking down at the timer. So this is turning into one of my longer episodes. Um, hopefully you found this episode useful. Again, this was a mailbag request uh, to do more assessment-related episodes. So I'm happy to get into more specific psychological assessments in this season. That's what people want. Um, this is more of one of the bread and butter ones, so that's why I wanted to cover it first in this season. Uh, but if you have mailbag requests, if you want me to cover other different sorts of assessments or that sort of thing, you can email me at ctaylo41 at cbu.edu. It doesn't need to be assessment related. Anything psychologically related um, is fair game, in my opinion. And uh, speaking of the mailbag, had uh, a fair amount of mailbag emails that came through sort of during the interim between season two and this first episode of season three. 
and I'll try to get to that those in future episodes. Um, uh, but one mailbag request is, uh, hi, Dr. Taylor, I'm a new licensed social worker, and I listen to your podcast a lot to help me get oriented to the field. I was wondering if you could do an episode about assessing for school shooters and how those of us in the field can go about protecting ourselves from people who want to come after mental health therapists for not preventing the school shooting. Thank you so much for this podcast. Uh, and that's a fascinating uh, topic. Um, and I did a continuing education on this topic, I think about two years ago. So let's make that the topic of our next podcast episode. Um, until that next episode, uh, take care, stay well, send me mailbag requests, um, and I'll see you around in a couple of weeks.